0: Welcome to Central Baptist Church of Livingston, Texas. We're glad that you've chosen to study God's Word with us today. We'd invite you to visit our website, centrallivingston.com, to learn more about our mission to preach, to teach, and to live the gospel for the glory of God. Now, open your Bible or your Bible app and study God's Word with us. Hey, church, you can be seated. How about that? As we go into a time of prayer together, yeah, that's right, we can celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because the Lord is great, and He is greater. You know, we've been singing a lot this morning about the Lord. Obviously, we're here to worship Him. He's the, he's the one, He is the focus of our attention this morning. You know, as we move into our time of prayer, I want to invite those of you who want to come and join me here at the front to come on now. Um, but listen, you know, we enter into a week of Thanksgiving, a time where we thank the Lord for so much in our life, Right. We are so thankful to God for so much. I want to remind us, though, of what it says in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, You know, at the very end of that book, the Apostle Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica. He says this He says, Rejoice always, rejoice always, right? Um, He says, Pray without ceasing. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. Did you hear that? All circumstances. That means the high moments in our life and the low moments in our life. The apostle Paul tells us, the Lord tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. Man, sometimes it's hard at times and I realize that and I know that. You lose a spouse, you're entering into a season where you're struggling with discouragement or depression in your life. Things just didn't go well for you this week. That decision that you needed to make didn't go the way, the reaction didn't go the way you wanted it to or that you played it out in your mind. And yet the Lord comes to us in in this season of Thanksgiving. We thank him as a nation, yes. We thank him as individuals. We thank him as a family thank Him as a church, both in the high moments and in the low moments. You know what gives us the ability to do that? It is the grace of God. It is to remember the songs we've been singing, to remember the truth that God is in control of all things, and that's not just a cliche. He really holds everything in His hands. He holds your situation in his hands. He holds your uncertainty in his hands. He he holds the past, the present, and the future in his hands. He holds our church in his hands. And we need to remember that on this morning. We sing these songs that bring us to Christ. Now let's pray to him, the very one who has saved us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has given us the reason to come together like this on a Sunday morning. There is no other place that I want to be than with you on a Sunday morning. I don't want to be some far off place or somewhere. I don't want to be by myself. I want to be with y'all. I want to be with the Lord. And so let's talk to him now. Let's pray to him and let's just thank him for these many things that he has done in our lives, that he is currently doing in our lives, that he wants to do in our lives. The high moments and the low moments. Let's pray to him. And Fathers, we come to you. We thank you this morning for this time, this time that we have, the church, the gathering of your people, Lord, the gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ. Multiple generations, God, we come to you. We come to you as new believers who don't know very much about your word. We come to you as seasoned believers, Lord, where we are continuing and consistently growing. We're on this trajectory. God, we come to you, Lord, as As those who, Lord, have experienced so much in our life, good, bad, Lord, we come to you because we know and understand you're a God who hears, you're a God who listens to us. You are a God, Lord, that we're talking to now, the creator of all things, the creator of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of every human being on this planet. God, there's so much we don't understand about this life. So much we don't understand about this world, so much that we don't understand as to why things happen the way they happen. Situations take place the way they take place. But we come to you because God, you hold the past, the present, the future in your hands. Nothing surprises you. You have complete and total control over everything. And we believe that today. Father, we thank you this morning for the high moments in our life, the moments which we can celebrate, the moments that put a smile on our faces, Lord, the moments, God, that we celebrate as a family, as a married couple, as individuals, Lord, that bring joy in our hearts. We celebrate those things, and we give you thanks for them, and we pray for the grace to thank you for the moments in our life where we cry and we weep. The difficult seasons in our life, Lord, we give you thanks for them because, God, we know that you have commanded us to, yes, but God, you've given us, Lord, this understanding, this faith that we have in a God who, Lord, can see beyond the horizons of our life, Lord, where we suffer and struggle and cannot see beyond, but you do. And in these moments, Lord, of struggle, in these moments of tears, we know, God, that you're leading us to be even more dependent upon you to lean into your power, lean into your presence, because we know that, God, you are here. We know that you are there, and we praise you for that, and we thank you for that, even through tears. We thank you that, Lord, we are not alone, that we are not abandoned, but that, God, you are with us and lockstep with us in our lives, that because we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, your Son, God, you live in us. You live in our hearts. And even though, Lord, your attention is on everything happening in the world today, on every individual in the world today, across the entire globe, across all of our universe, yet you would choose to have a personal relationship with us. You see us. You know us. You have a word for us each and every day. And so we trust you. We confess moments when we haven't trusted you. We repent of those things today. We repent of our sin today, those barriers, those things that God are getting in the way of having that personal relationship that is in right standing with you. Lord, we just confess and repent of anything in our lives right now. We know we are met with a God who is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. Thank you for that grace, God. Thank you for that mercy. We thank you for your word today, because it is your word that guides us and directs us through this life. Lord, we are blind. We are in the darkness without it. And we pray this morning, God, that you would open our hearts, take away the distractions from our minds, and help us to focus on you and you alone, Lord. We love you for that. We just pray your word would penetrate our hearts. God, you would change us. You would conform us into your image That we would not follow the ways of the world, not follow our own hearts, but God, that you would keep us in check with your word and give us a vision, a greater vision for our lives, a greater purpose for our lives than, than 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 the vision, God, that this world gives to us, the purpose this world gives to us, and that our hearts lead us to. And so we ask that you'd open our hearts to the truth that you have for us today. And then God, give us the faith and give us the courage to believe it and to follow it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, open your Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to look this morning at Joshua 3. And we're going to continue our series this morning, as you see above my heads, Faithful God, Courageous Living. We are walking chapter by chapter, section by section, through the book of Joshua together. And we come this morning to Joshua chapter 3. I think there's a striking thing that we learn about our relationship with God. You know, we see this in in times when we come together and we worship him. We really see it in times not only when we come together, but just every day in our life. God is always promising big things. He's always promising these big, uh, outlandish promises to his people. I mean, when you open the Bible and you just read the Old Testament and then you read the New Testament, what you'll discover and understand if you don't know much about the Bible yet What you'll understand is that God is always promising these big, outlandish things to us. He's always promising big, outlandish um, uh, things that are going to happen in the future, things that he is going to do, things where he is going to deliver on. And then he always tends to want to be the center of attention. He always wants to be the center of the story. It kind of begins with Adam and Eve, doesn't it, in the Garden of Eden? It, can, it kind of flows, if you look at the Old Testament, it flows uh, to Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the line to David. We see in the Old Testament, we see the great kings of God's people who faithfully walked with him. God was to be the center of their life. God was to be the center of the tension. God was to be the center of the story. We, of course, see it flow into the New Testament with our Lord Jesus Christ coming. We see this time and time again. He has these lofty promises. He lays out before his people. He wants to be the center of that. That's not the way the world teaches us, by the way. Well, the way the world teaches us and the way we think about our relationship with God or our relationship, rather, with ourselves, the world says that the strength comes within you, doesn't it? Strength is within you. The world tells you that if you think hard enough about a problem, you're going to find the solution, and you're going to find the solutions to the problems in your life, or the problems in life themselves. If you just work hard enough, if you just think well enough, think hard enough, think through a matter enough, you'll eventually inevitably come up with the answer, and ultimately man becomes the center of the story. But that's not the way it is with God. I think we understand need to understand that the keys to life, the key to life is that God is the center of the story. He always has been, he always will be, long before you and I walked this earth, and long after you and I walk this earth. God has always been the center of the story. God will always be the center of the story. He is always wanting to make possible the impossible. He is always wanting to do something that is greater than what our intellect and our abilities can show us and teach us and the, the, the way in which we can, the ultimate end of our life and how we work hard. He wants to make the impossible possible. After centuries of waiting, I want you to think about this story. We've gone through two chapters of Joshua. After centuries of waiting, God's people are gonna go into the promised land they're going to enter into this land that God has promised them, this big outlandish promise he gave to Abram. God's going to do this work within them and among them. And remember, he's preparing them for it. So in Joshua 1 and 2, there has been this, this mandate, if you will, about God to Joshua himself. And Joshua then goes to the people and he challenges the people. He challenges them on how they were to live. He challenges on them on saying, listen, there's the promise. Go, follow me, do exactly what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. Don't, don't ask questions. Don't logically try to figure this thing out. Just follow me. And so in Joshua 1 and 2, God comes to Joshua. Joshua comes to the people, and the people do what? They buy into it. They're all in. Remember, this is generation two, the second generation of God's people, the first generation, get it wrong, The first generation choose to follow themselves, choose to follow their own hearts, choose to walk away from the promised land and say, those city walls are too big. Those nations are too large. There is no way. There is no speaking to the mountains in generation one. They're not looking at God. They're looking at themselves in generation one. Remember? They they look at the impossibilities of what God has told them to do. That's impossible. There's no way I could cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land. There's no way we can defeat that army. There's no way we can do this. There's no way we can do that. They're only thinking within their own hearts, which are very limited, aren't they? We, We can't see 15 minutes ahead of us, but God can. God had already given them the promised land. It wasn't a matter of whether they were going to get it or not. Maybe there's no 50/50 chance here. There's no 80/20. There's no odds. There are no odds when it comes to when God says He's going to do something. He's going to do it. He just wants our obedience to do it. Right? No odds. 100%. But they were unwilling. Second generation though is willing, and they're all in. And so God comes to Joshua, Joshua goes to the people, the people say, yes, we're all in for God and for you, we're going to follow you, we're going to follow God into the future. God, whatever you want us to do, we will do. And so they send this recon mission in, right, in chapter 2, this reconnaissance mission, they go to Jericho and they go into the city walls of Jericho. They meet this woman by the name of Rahab. We saw the story two weeks ago and Rahab acts in faith and she responds and here this prostitute of all, of all people, someone who didn't grow up in a Jewish home, someone who didn't grow up around the festivals and the feasts and all of the Torah and learning it and memorizing it and understanding about God. No, she didn't have any of that reference point. She wasn't around any of God's people who influenced her life in a positive way, but she saw God She saw God moving among God's people, and so she, by faith, reacted. She, by faith, believed in it, and she finds herself in the Hall of Fame of Faith in the book of Hebrews. She finds herself in the genealogy, the, the, the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Tell me God is not a God of grace and mercy. When he puts someone who is a prostitute, someone who is not even remotely close to being righteous and holy in the way that she lived her life growing up, but in that space, in that moment, she turns to follow God and his plan for her life. And God uses it in a powerful way. God's people that are sent, or this reconnaissance mission goes in, Rahab responds in faith, they come back, and when they come back, they know that God, based on Rahab's response, they know that God has already given us the land. And they're celebrating it. But you see, here's the thing. Even though they know that there is, this is the land, it's time to move upon the promises of God by crossing the first obstacle. And the first obstacle here in, in, in Joshua 3 is the Jordan River. This is the obstacle. they got to get across the river. How are they going to get across the river? That's the question, they got to cross the river in order to get to this this place that God has already given to them. So it's time to move on the promises of God by crossing this Jordan. And look there with me in chapter 3, because here's the thing. There are two stages, if you will, of preparation, followed by a miracle in the end of chapter 3. I want you to notice with me the two stages, and then we're going to look at the miracle, and then we're going to look back at what God says to us and how this all applies to our life, because God has a great principle for us when it comes to how we are to follow him. So first of all, I want you to notice there in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, they needed to be spiritually ready. Now, church, listen, they needed to be spiritually right and ready before God. So look with me at at verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan River, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. Verse 2, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and you follow it. Verse 4, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, do not come near it. Listen, listen to what God says. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, for tomorrow the Lord will do. Uh, will do wonders among you. Verse 6, And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant, and they went before the people. So here's the thing. Here's the, here, at the beginning of the story. It's, it's very simple. They they arrive at the Jordan River and they stop. They're not to wait before they get to the Jordan River. They're not to wait where they are currently at in verse one. They're just to get to the Jordan River. They're ready to go, and then they stop at the beginning of the Jordan River. So they're at their edge of the Jordan River. And then notice in verse two, the officers then begin to instruct the people. Now, if you go back to chapter one, verse eleven. The officers have gone throughout, and they have said what? I want you to get ready. You need to get ready. You need to get your provisions ready because within three days, we're going. We're pushing the go button. We're going into the promised land. So here they are at the edge of the Jordan River. When you see the ark pass, he tells them, when you see the ark pass, the officers instruct the people, when you see the ark pass, then, then, then break camp, and then I want you to follow it. 2,000 cubits is around 1,000 yards, roughly a half a mile. They were to stay not near the ark. They were not to go up and touch the ark and grab it and say, hey, we're gonna hold on to God. They were supposed to stay within about a half a mile from the ark of the covenant. Ark of the covenant was to pass in front of the people. This is all important. We're gonna come and talk about it in a moment. They were to pass in front of the people. They were to. It was to go with the priests about 1,000 yards ahead of them. They were to maintain a safe distance from the ark. Why is that important? Well for a couple reasons they needed to know where to go. You see God had told them where they were going to do. He didn't tell them specifically the way did he? He didn't say well I want you to go down about a half a mile go down a few miles and find the shallowest end of the of the Jordan River and try to cross over there no he just said listen you're going to cross this Jordan you're going to go into the promised land but he didn't tell them where. And so now they get, they, they get a little bit more understanding about what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to watch these priests with the Ark of the Covenant pass in front of them about a half a mile and stay a half a mile ahead of them and they're gonna go into the Jordan River. And this was the safe passage into the Promised Land. As long as they followed the Ark, as long as they followed God and his Ark, then they would be safer where they were What's the significance of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, listen, I'm, I'm not gonna go into all the details, but listen, this is the whole focus of the story. This is the whole focus of chapter three. The, the, the focus of chapter three is on the, the Ark. The, the focus of chapter three is on the presence of God. You see, this is the focus. The Ark is the most holy, in, in, the, in, in the Old Testament, it was the most holy physical possession of Israel. It symbolized, listen, the presence of God. It was the presence of God among the people. So so yes, it symbolized the presence of God, but listen, church, understand this. It was the presence of God. This wasn't just in a box. This wasn't just a wooden box overlaid with gold with all kinds of creative and cool kind of things around it. It was the presence of God among the people. They were to set eyes on it. They were to stay a distance away from it. They were to follow it. Their focus and their attention was to be on it. It contained three things. It contained the tablets. Remember that Moses received those two tablets, the Ten Commandments. God himself wrote on the tablets of stone. It also contained the rod, uh, Aaron's rod. We'll have to go back in time and look at that. But it also contained a jar of manna representing God's provision for his people. Understand that their eyes, their focus was to be on this. And it was the power and it was the presence of God among the people. And Listen, church, this is the story of God's glory. The story of God's glory is this, and understand this about God. If you come in here and you get a thousand different definitions about God when you you, you grow up in our society, in our culture, when you study all kinds of religions in the world, you get all kinds of different definitions of God. Well, my God is this, and my God is this, and my God is this. Understand this, that what the Bible says about God, understand that what the Bible says about who he is in relation to us is there is this, intimacy among his people and separation among his people. There is intimacy and yet separation. God is the one here in the story in Joshua chapter 3 that is, the, is gaining the glory. It isn't the people. It is God himself. He is the center of the story. And there is this intimacy between them and God, and yet there is this separation of a half a mile between God and themselves. Look at the end of verse 4. Because at the end of verse four, notice what what God says to them, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go for you have not passed this way before. God was telling them to do something new. They knew about what Egypt was like, they knew about the, 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 what, what it felt like in the desert, they knew what, a, what a, a, a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning felt like when they came out of their tents and they walked out into the open desert. They, they knew that, they got that, that was in their wheelhouse, but what they didn't understand is they didn't know the promised land. God was doing something new among them. He was calling them to something new. He was leading them to a new direction and leading them to a place that they had never gone before. This is why, at the end of verse four, he says, "He says, listen, for you have never passed this way before." It was a place that they didn't know. It was a place that wasn't familiar. Has God ever told you or commanded you or led you to do something you're not familiar with? Has God ever in your life caused you to change? And to go somewhere and to do something new with your life or in your ministry, in our church, in your family, to step out in faith and to do something new, a place that you've never been, a, a ministry you've never, you've never performed or, or led in or submitted to? Has God ever done that in your life? This is what God does. He stretches us. He pushes us. He leads us. God is already working ahead of his people. All they need to do is follow him. But they need to know where he's at. They need to have that safe distance between themselves and him. And they need to have their focus on the Lord himself. Where the ark moved, they moved. Where the ark went, they went. They were simply to follow it. But then I want you to notice what happens there in verse 5. We read it a moment ago. Because this is where their focus is. Now their focus is on the, on the ark. But notice what Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourselves. The word consecrate, set apart, make yourself holy. It's the idea of separation from things unclean for a common purpose. To separate yourself for, a, for something that is unclean, that where you are unclean, to something that is set apart for a common purpose. This idea comes, and we see it in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. The people of God were to refrain from certain foods. They were to wash themselves. They were not to enter into intimacy with one another as husbands and wives. Why all of this spiritual prep? What is going on? What is the big deal here? What is Joshua doing with his people when he says, with the people when he says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you? God is about to do these wonders the next day. It's the same word that God's doing the wonders in, the, in, in Egypt when, his, when first, the first generation of God's people see God do these wonders, see the river uh, or the, the sea, the Red Sea split apart. God's about to do wonders just simply because when he did these wonders in Egypt, God's about to do something big. God's gonna do something that they will never forget. Don't you remember those big moments in your life those moments in your life that, you know what, you, the, all kinds of life experiences, all kinds of memories that we have, they tend to fade away, but there are these certain moments in our life that we remember that we'll never, ever forget. I can tell you specific things about specific events. This is one of those moments that they are never, ever, 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 ever going to forget. God's people are going to see God move, manifest His presence, manifest Himself among them in a powerful and in a tangible way. God's going to move. These people just need to follow. And so before they cross the Jordan River, they got to be spiritually prepared. They got to be ready. And then notice the second phase or the next step or the next stage, if you will, of their preparation. Look at verse 7. The Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you. That's key. In the sight of all of Israel, I'm going to lift you up, Joshua, that they may know, as I was with Moses, verse 7, so I will be with you. Verse 8. And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan River, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Listen, listen to God. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua in verse 10 said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. That he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Yeah, that's a lot of ites, I know. Verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now watch this, verse 12, now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of your feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one big heap. One big heap. God's about to do something big. And he needed to have them prepared spiritually. But now we see God doing something big among them. God is establishing his leader there in verse 8 and 7 and 8. He's establishing Joshua. God told them what they would do for Joshua, that they would follow him. He also tells Joshua that they would know that God was the God of Joshua. This is not a story about Joshua. This is never a story in verse 7 and 8 about Joshua himself. He's not the center of the story. He's not the center of of what's happening in Joshua 3. God is. He, God wants them to understand that God is with Joshua. God is going to, to be with Joshua. They follow Joshua's words. They follow Joshua's leading, not because Joshua is this good-looking, wise dude. It's because Joshua is God's chosen man to lead his people into Israel. When they follow Joshua, they're following the Lord. That's it. They're following the one who has authority over Joshua. They're following the man who has this, this anointing by God upon his life, this special, specific calling upon his life to lead his people into this promised land. This is not about Joshua, but it is about God. And he is going to exalt Joshua, not to exalt this man's per se. He's going to exalt God himself, himself. And so with that, God reveals what he, not the people, were about to do. They were to enter the water. They were to stand in the water. These priests were to stand in the water. When they stood in the water and when these men stood in the water, the, the waters of the Jordan River would stop. Y'all ever seen a, a river do that? Just asking. You mean y- y- y'all have been out, you know, singing that song about mountains reminds me of the mountains back in Virginia where I'm at and there's these cold, ice cold mountain rivers that come out. I- I- I've just never seen when I step into the water, it's like boom. Never seen it. But you see, on this day, God moves. God does this in powerful ways, and he's going to do this to sear, sear, burn into the memories of God's people that it is God who is the one who is working. And if they'll just put their eyes and their focus on the Lord, God's gonna do great things. He's gonna do mighty things. He's gonna do powerful things. And this isn't about the wonders of God, looking for wonders of God. It is about God himself and following God in every respect. And so Joshua instructs the people in verse 9. We see, he says, come here and listen. The specific way for the people to know that God was present. Look at verse 13. We come back to verse 13, which we read a moment ago. Behold, um, or rather, and when the souls of the feet of the priests hearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the flow from flowing. The waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Why did they need to know that God was present? Why would God make something that is possible, something or out of something that was impossible? Why would God do something that make it possible that was out that was not that was not possible to begin with, that was impossible to begin with? Church, listen, we need to understand something as they needed to understand something on that day. Look back at verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is working among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, and all those ites. They needed to know that God's power and his manifest presence was among them. They needed to know that this is not business as usual. This is not a normal average day with walking with, with God or any normal day. God is with you. God is working among you. God is working ahead of you. And this is all about the Lord. God gave, so God gives them this tangible, visible kind of reminder that he is present with them. Verse 11, back at verse 11, this is what he says. He says, hey, check this out, look, see, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the earth is passing over before you and your, in other words, behold, look, see, the ark was the God. that was the Lord himself, this was no box. They needed to see and understand that God was with them and among them. Now, think about where God's people are. They, they've come across the wilderness they're at the precipice of going into the promised land. The spies have come back and said, God's given it to us. We've met with this prostitute named Rahab. She's following God. She, she, we've got the inroad the people's hearts are already melted. God's already given the people to us. He's already given this all to us now. what God comes to them and says, listen, get your eyes, get your focus on God himself. Now the focus is, and their attention is on God himself. Now check out the miracle at the end of the story, in verse 14. And so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord. Look at verse 15. As soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water. Now, the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of harvest. I love how God just kind of slips in that little detail of impossibility. It's already impossible. Let's make it even more impossible. Mount Hermon, snow, water now is melting. The river, the Jordan is overflowing. It's not the normal uh, Jordan River. It's overflowing. It's at flood stage. I love how God just puts those little details in there. Now, check this out, verse, verse 16. The waters coming down from, the, from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. And the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Ereba, the salt sea, were completely cut off. No trickle, y'all, completely cut off. People's feet didn't get wet, dry ground the people passed over opposite Jericho and now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground, not wet ground, not muddy ground, dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. People move. They move when God says to move. The Jordan River stops. The people cross on dry ground. And now they're on their way of achieving, achieving what God wants them to achieve. They're on the way of being in the center of God's will and doing what God wants, and God's going to gain the victory out of all of this. And I think when we come to this story, listen, church, and we need to understand this, the, the main idea, the main point of what God says to them as he says to us is that, listen, God works when his people follow. God will work when his people follow him. It's as simple as that. It's as uncomplicated as that. When his people cry out to him, when, when his people follow him, when his people are willing to follow him, he takes something that is impossible and he makes it possible. He does things that are, that are unconventional, if you will, that don't make sense to the human heart and the human mind and he does something big in front of us. Now don't you understand something this morning? He is building his kingdom, and he loves to do big things with his people and among his people. But understand this. He will not do these things automatically. God works when he initiates the action, and his people follow him. It's as simple as that. It's as uncomplicated as that. I think we need to understand something this morning, and several things this morning as we come to this this chapter. When I think about this chapter, I think about several things about the impossibilities of God. You see, for the impossible to become possible, listen, first and foremost, it has to come from God. I mean, this is divine direction. This isn't me charging out there and saying, I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me, taking that verse out of context, and just running out and just doing something random. It has to be from what God has said you to do, Whatever God wants you to do, whatever God leads you to do, there is this divine direction we see in the, the, in the story. I mean, the people of God get new orders. They have a new direction. They have a new place they're supposed to go. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how they're supposed to do it or in what ways they're supposed to do it. All they do know is that they're supposed to follow God's direction, and he's the one leading. He's the one speaking. He's the one leading us in this particular direction. They were simply to follow the will of God. You know how you know the will of God? You know how you understand the will of God? You open your Bibles and you begin to read God's word to us and to you. And so I don't know about, about." well, listen, there's a lot more to God's will that you can understand, even though you might not understand the specific little nuances and specific decisions you're supposed to make to understand God's will, you know so much about what God wants. We know so much about what God wants just simply by opening up his word to us. So first and foremost, if God is to do the impossible or do something that is possible out of something that is impossible, then it has to come from God. Secondarily, though, for the impossible to become possible, you have to obey the instructions of the Lord. You notice that? As simple as that. God leads and tells his people where they're supposed to go. He leads them on how they are supposed to go. He tells them what they're supposed to do. Get your eyes on the ark. But it required them to act. Oh, God is sovereign, 100%. Oh, God is in control, 100%. But God moves and works when his people, understanding this responsibility that he's placed upon us to act. To act. It means to move. It means to change, it means to shift, it means to do big things, it means to do bold things in the eyes and the nature of God. When God says to move, when God says he wants me to move in a specific direction, I'm, I'm supposed to move. I'm supposed to move in that direction. I'm supposed to realign, rearrange my entire life to acquiesce whatever God wants, whatever how and how, how he wants to lead me and what direction he wants to take me. So they separated themselves for God's work. They separated themselves for what he wanted them to do. They became holy in the sense that they, were, they tried to follow God's plan. They didn't expect God to do impossible. Listen, we can't expect God to do the impossible in our lives and in our homes and in our churches when we're living in sin, when we're living outside of God's will, when we're stuck spiritually, when we're apathetic when we're indifferent to the things of God, when we're content at just reading a verse of scripture or listening to a sermon, and, and it has no impact upon our life. When I hear a Bible study lesson or I come to my devotions and God leads me to something in his word and then it has no impact upon my life and about 15 minutes later I've forgotten what it says and I just go about my day, that is what's called indifference and apathy. God had your, had your ear for just a few minutes, and now he doesn't. God says he wants us to have his ear. He wants to have our ear, rather, and then he wants us to move upon the things that he tells us to do. So the Ark of the Covenant's in the water. Tells him to, to stay half a mile away. There weren't that day individuals who forgot about that rule. I mean, they, they didn't get 1,500 cubits away from God, and maybe a few drifters over here. Well, I forgot. No, they were locked in on what God wanted. They were locked in on what God said to do. And then they were willing to follow Him fully and 100% with their life. A pure life that is obedient to God's will. Listen, a pure life that is obedient to God's will is a life that God will use to do the impossible. Purity, holiness, righteousness, confessing sin, and saying I'm going, to tr- I'm going to follow God entirely with my life is the key. There's a third thing I think, though, about the impossibilities of God. Because for the, for the impossible to become possible with God, then you've got to exercise that faith in what God wants you to do. There has to be that faith in what God wants you to do. Think about verse four. Look back at the end of verse four. Look at that phrase of what God says to his people there. Don't miss the details. Don't miss the phrase at the end of verse four. Don't come near it in order that you may know the way in which you shall go. Listen, for you have not passed this way before. This is a trial of faith for the people of God. I think the natural resistance in our life is that we naturally resist change. We naturally resist moving in the spaces of places where we don't see what the outcome is and we're not comfortable in the outcome. I know I do, I know you do. We tend to to live within the familiar. We, we swim in the river of, of what we know and what we experience, the comforts of, of what we've experienced all about our lives. But, but when God then says, "I want you to get out of that stream of comfortable uh, uh, of, of being comfortable, to doing something and, th- and that is familiar, to doing something that is unfamiliar, to go to a place that is unfamiliar, to do something that requires you to change and to move and to shift, then that, that's when we get like, "Oh, do all that." But, but that's precisely what God does here in verse four. He says, listen, I'm taking you to a place you're not familiar with. You don't know where you are going. And what happens tends to happen in our life. It tends to lead to fear because that's human nature, which is of the flesh, not of the spirit. We, we're, we're afraid to do something that God tells us not to do or to, to do that we're not comfortable with and that we're not familiar with. We tend to have that fear of not wanting to, I don't want, uh, uh, no, no. And God says, go, go. I'm taking to a place that you're not familiar with. This is the whole point. Everything was new at some point in your life. To generation one, they came out of Egypt. They had never seen the Red Sea part. New. He brought them into the wilderness, a place that Most all of them had never been new. He brought them to a mountain called Mount Sinai. He filled the whole top of Mount Sinai with clouds and thunder and lightning, takes Moses to the top of the mountain. New. He he takes them then to the precipice of the promised land. He reminds them all these promises that God has given to Abram, Isaac, Jacob, all all the the way down the line. He takes them to this promised land. He shows them the Jordan River. Yeah, but he he sends these spies into the the land. They come back. It's 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 new. I, no, no, I, no, no, I want to go back to Egypt. God then takes them into the wilderness, right, 40 years. Listen, church, we have to understand that what God wants to do in our life, and you, you need to understand that this leads to fear, which is flesh, and it's not of the spirit. Listen to this phrase, this, this, this quote, uh, your present pathway is new to you, but it is never new to the Lord, In other words, whatever is new, whatever God is leading you to do in the future, it may be, or what is in your present, it may be new to you. Let me just say, uh, just off on on a side note, whatever tragedy, whatever experience you're experiencing right now in your life that is new, and you say, I can't believe I'm going through this, I can't believe I'm dealing with this. Listen, it may be new and fresh to you, but it is not to God. God has already seen it. In fact, when we think about the Lord, when we think about God in our lives, understand this. Everything is present with God. If he sees the past, the present, and the future, if he knows the past, the present, and the future, it's all present for him. I mean, he sees your life, he sees your family, he sees Central Baptist Church a 100 years from now, right now. In the mind of, of God, he sees our church a hundred years from now. He knows who's going to be sitting out here. He knows whether these buildings are even going to be here. He knows who's going to be standing on this stage preaching. He knows whether this church is even still existing hundred years from now, as it did a hundred years ago. God sees the past, the present, and the future. It's all present with him. Therefore, in your life, understand that with God, everything is present. Nothing surprises him. It's happening in your life. It's a test of faith. It's a trial of faith in our life for all that God wanted to do. It required belief and action by God's people here on the Jordan River, on the banks of the Jordan River. They had to get up and follow. Rahab had to act in faith towards what he, she knew about God, what she knew about the, the, the understanding of who God was and what he had already done among the people. She had to act in faith and say, God is with you. I'm going to trust that. In the New Testament, the Bible teaches us and leads us to Jesus Christ, our Savior, and when we think about Christ, what did Jesus tell his disciples to do? Two simple words that are so profound that God leads us to understand. Follow me, follow me. Jesus didn't tell his disciples exactly what they were going to experience or where they were going. Jesus didn't tell them what they were gonna feel. He didn't explain in detail what they were going to lose and what it was going to cost them in detail. He didn't tell them what they were going to gain. With the Apostle Paul, and you fast forward to the Apostle Paul when Jesus now has been ascended into heaven. He didn't tell the Apostle Paul how difficult it was going to be in Philippi. He, he, He didn't lay out for the Apostle Paul how he was going to die in detail. He didn't, he didn't show him the face of the man who was going to kill him. He, he, he didn't show him the faces of the people he was going to win to Christ. He, he didn't show them, he didn't show the Apostle Paul what a group of believers was going to look like in Thessalonica or in Colossae or in, uh, uh, in, in, in these other cities like Ephesus and others. He just told him to go and trust me, follow me. Follow my spirit's leading, and I will do big things. I will do great things. I will do impossible things. I will make it possible what is impossible. I will save people. I will bring about the redemption of people's hearts and minds, and I will build my church. I simply want you to follow me. Listen, church, God works when his people follow. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. God wants that for your life through Jesus Christ. He doesn't just want us to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ, he wants us to live on behalf of Jesus Christ. You see, the reaction that we understand, the, the reaction, the natural reaction to understanding who God is, when God is speaking, when God is moving, when God's voice is leading you to do something, leading you to come to him, then the right reaction of our lives is not to say, yep, a boy, God. It is, to, it is to recalibrate our lives, to move our lives in line with his and to follow him. It should cause a change. It should cause a transformation in our hearts and in our lives. Lastly, listen, for the impossible to become impossible, you must recognize, listen, the presence and the power of God. Recognize his presence and his power in your life and among us. For God to do big things here, central, for God to do big things in your heart, in your home, in your marriage. You first have to understand that He wants to do God, He wants to do big things in your heart. He wants to move in your heart specifically. You've got to acknowledge that God has worked in the past. He, he is working even now. He is, wants to work in the future. He wants to work in and through you. Because understand that greater is he who is in you than is, what? In the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God is present. God is at work in your life, and, and, and when you follow him, to enjoy more of that life that he provides. He wants you to enjoy more of that life that he provides. How? Well, I'll tell you how. The way that he works in our life, the way that he moves in our life is this. You need to understand something about this story as it relates to Jesus Christ. You see, our high priest went through the waters of death. Our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, went through the waters of death ahead of us, just as the priests went into the waters of the Jordan River that parted the sea. Joshua that day may have been exalted in that water, but Jesus Christ himself is exalted at the moment in which he is baptized. I want to remind you this morning what it says in Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus. Listen to what it says that Jesus came to Galilee in the Jordan River to John. To be baptized by him, and John would have prevented him saying, "I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me?"' But Jesus answered him, "Let it be so now, for this, or thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And so John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down and resting upon him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now understand this this morning, that Jesus Christ is our high priest, and in that same water, the same water that the priests in the Ark of the Covenant stand in, the same waters are the same waters that Jesus Christ himself is baptized The same waters that he himself is being exalted in this moment and he is the key if you want to have right, be right and made new with God in heaven. You cannot follow him, we cannot follow him unless we choose to follow him wholeheartedly with our hearts and with our life. The way in which we follow him wholeheartedly with our life is by first and foremost surrendering to his will in our life. And his will in our life is to embrace Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. When we embrace him as our Savior and our Lord, then he sets us on a path of following him fully and wholeheartedly with our lives. And so listen, church, before we close and as we close this morning, God wants you to know him. God wants us to follow him. And when we choose to follow him wholeheartedly with our hearts and with our minds and with our souls... God does big things. He carries out his will. He does the impossible. He takes the impossible and he makes it possible. And that's what God wants to do in your life, what he wants to do in your home, what he wants to do in our church. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? You know, as we come to this time where we respond to him, God wants you to do, first and foremost, is to know him personally the way you know him personally is by surrendering your life to Jesus. And maybe that's this morning where you need to be. Maybe you know God. Maybe you know who God is. Maybe you've read about him. Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you've been a member of a church. Maybe you've casually gone to church. Maybe you've been religious. Maybe you've tried to do good things, but good things will not and never get you into heaven. You have to surrender full and wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, our high priest, the one who has been exalted, the one who has been lifted up, the one who is worthy of our praise, the one who is worthy of our worship, the, re- the, one, the reason why we are here today. There is no other reason than to worship and to follow Jesus. And that may be what God's telling you to do today, and that is to respond to him and to say yes to Jesus, to follow him with your heart. But listen, you as a home, you as a marriage, you as a a member of our congregation, collectively, what God wants from us is just our yes. Just follow him. He's given us a direction, he's giving us a direction. He's leading us, he's guiding us, he's at work in our present, he's been at work in our past, he is working in our future we just need to say yes to him and say, I want to follow you, God. And maybe that is what you need to do this morning, Christian. Maybe you just need to say to the Lord during this time as we sing, God, I'm willing to follow you. Whatever you're saying, however uncomfortable it is for me in my life, how unfamiliar it may be, you lead me, you take me where you want me to go, and you take the impossible and you make it possible. You make it possible in our church. You make it possible in our community. Do what only you can do, Lord. Help me, and this is a prayer that I've had to pray for myself this week. Baby, you need to pray this prayer. Help me to come to the end of myself. Help me to come to the end of myself. It's not about me anymore. It's not about the direction I want. It's not about my preferences. God, it's about what you want. And I gotta get out of the way for that to happen. Help me to come to the end of myself. Father, as we come to this moment, this time, we pray that you, Lord, would move among us as you have been, open our hearts to receive you, open our hearts to believe in you, open our hearts to, by faith, follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're gonna look up here this morning. We're going to have a time of response i'll be here at the front we'll be here at the front to receive you pray with you over any matter and you have the courage to come this morning let's stand and sing together thank you for tuning in to one of our services we would love to invite you if you're ever in the livingston area to worship with us we're located at 503 northeast avenue in livingston texas Here at Central Baptist, we are an intergenerational body of baptized believers with a blended style of praise who value expositional preaching, meaningful membership, consistent discipleship across all ages, and a gospel emphasis both locally and globally. If you'd like more information about Central, please visit our website at centrallivingston.com. Once again, thank you and have a blessed day.